Parsha Toldot, this particular Parsha brings back a lot of fond memories for me. Um, I've spoken on this Parsha a couple different times. This was also the Parsha in which Rabbi Howard Silverman came and visited our congregation. That was Parsha Toldot. And even my father, um, after he passed away, I'd inherited his kumash, and he has his um, little marker, the little ribbon there that marks your spot. That's set at Parsha Toldot. So it's always, I've always enjoyed and loved this Parsha. Today I'm beginning a new, sort of turning over a new leaf, because I want to begin to start talking about prophecy, which is something that's normally not my thing. Eh, some pastors, their bread and butter is prophecy. Uh, that's really just what they're into. And it's never really been something that I've spoken about up here. Um, but you get... Uh, it's sort of hints and clues from the Spirit about, you know, just what to do in life in general. And so as I've been going through actually the past couple months, there's been a lot of just clues put out there to start prepping myself to think about the future a little bit, right? So while we might not be getting into the book of Revelation just yet, I mean, because I have to ease into this, um, we'll be getting there. And so I just kind of uh, today will sort of be getting my feet and wet in the waters a little bit with this. Um, but first, let's go to this week's Torah portion to set this discussion up. Um, Reed John had us at the end of this week's Torah portion. I would like to start out at the beginning, which is on page 25. It's Bereshit, or Genesis chapter 25, verse 19. That's where this week's Torah portion starts out. I'm going to read just the first eight verses, and then we'll kind of get through this a little bit here. Parsha Todot. Bereshit 25, verse 19. Here is the history of Yitzchak, Avraham's son. Avraham fathered Yitzchak. Yitzchak was 40 years old when he took Rivka, the daughter of Betuel, the Arami from Padamaram, and the sister of Lavan, the Arami, to be his wife. Yitzchak prayed to Adonai on behalf of his wife because she was childless. Adonai heeded his prayer, and Rivka became pregnant. The children fought with each other inside her so much that she said, if it's going to be like this, why go on living? So she went to inquire of Adonai, who answered her, there are two nations in your womb. From birth, they will be two rival peoples. One of these peoples will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time for her delivery came, there were twins in her womb. The first to come out was reddish and covered all over with hair like a coat, so they named him Esau. Then his brother emerged with his hand holding Esau's heel, so he was called Yaakov. Yitzchak was 60 years old when she bore them. The boys grew, and Esau became a skillful hunter and outdoorsman. 
while Yaakov was a quiet man who stayed in the tents. Yitzchak favored Esau because he had a taste for game, and Rivka favored Yaakov. So, as we read on and continue reading here, we kind of know how the story goes, right? Esau sells his birthright for a bowl of soup, which seems kind of shocking, um, because the firstborn was supposed to be seen as a priest in the family structure. That's be Esau supposed to be seen as that priest-like figure. In ancient times, the firstborn was a very spiritual position and a privileged position. And so he sells his birthright here. That wasn't completely uncommon. Birthrights um, could be sold. They could be taken away. We read in 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 1, that Reuben, Reuben's birthright was taken away because he defiled his father's bed. So birthrights were something that you could trade, that could get taken away from you. It wasn't just stuck with the firstborn um, as it was. So. But in this case, Esau cared so little for his birthright that he trades it away for a bowl of sloop, uh, soup. And that shows a lack of character. And uh, to Rivka, it makes sense that that prophecy of the younger or of the older serving the younger would make sense, right? Yaakov was the spiritual one. Um, he was the good son in her eyes. She favored him. And while he was, you know, studying Torah or whatever he was doing, Esau was out bar uh, busy marrying foreign women and just causing a lot of problems. And so, and so uh, in her eyes, she was very, uh, very partial to Yaakov. So they get through living life for a little while, and we get to chapter 27. This is kind of where um, we're getting towards where John was just reading from. In chapter 27, Yitzchak is growing old, and his time is nearing an end. And Rivka starts to remember that prophecy from years ago that the older would serve the younger. And she's thinking in her head, oh, there's some blessings coming here. This is a very important time for my sons because they're each going to get a blessing, and I want the younger one to get the good blessing, right? You want the, you want the younger one to get that real powerful blessing that has all the covenant attachments to it because Adonai told her years earlier that the older would serve the younger. So she's starting to panic here a little bit. She's not sure what to do. So she comes up with a little bit of scheme, of course, and we know how this goes. Um, Yaakov dresses up like his brother, of course, at, at her prodding, right? Um, he dresses up like his brother, kind of uh, makes a fine meal for his father, pretends to be Esau, and tricks him, and then he received Esau's blessing. And everything went according to her plan at this point. But Esau comes back. That's where, uh, that's where it starts to go really south here. And Esau exposes a scheme, and much hardship ensues. And what follows in the wake of this is much grief and hardship, family strife, the family being split. The sad thing is, this whole charade was completely unnecessary. If Rivka would have just done nothing, everything would have been fine. Examine the blessings a little carefully. We're not going to read the whole thing, but we'll read the blessings here. Chapter 27, verse 28, that's where John began reading. There's two verses here. Chapter 27, 
verse 28. That's yeah, the beginning of the sixth Aliyot. So we're going to read this first blessing. Now you have to remember, Isaac thinks he's blessing Esau, right? That's who he thinks he's blessing here. So pay attention to how Yitzchak words this blessing for Esau. So may God give you dew, may God give you dew from heaven and richness of the earth and grain and wine in abundance. May people serve you and nations bow down to you. May you be Lord over your kinsmen. Let your brothers' descendants bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Now that sounds like a very nice blessing, of course. But it lacks a couple key components. It lacks covenantal language. There's nothing in there about the land, nothing in there about Abraham or lots of children. So it's a very nice blessing, but it lacks covenantal language. Yaakov thought he was blessing Esau, and the blessing that he formed for Esau was very particular. So Esau comes home, right? He tells his dad, uh, uh, Yaakov, he ripped off my blessing. He's very upset. He's crying, of course. And I can, you know, you can have a little bit of sympathy for him here at this point. But he finally gets his blessing in verse 39. So he says, don't you have a blessing for me, Father, right? And Yitzchak's probably thinking, well, I've got to come up with something on the spot here because I'm not going to give him Yaakov's blessing. So in verse 39, Esau finally gets his blessing. So go down to verse 39, and let's read this blessing. Verse 39. So now this is the real Yitzchak to Esau blessing, right? And Yitzchak's father answered him, Here your home will be of the richness of the earth and the dew of the heaven above. You will live by your sword, and you will serve your brother, but when you break loose, you will shake his yoke off your neck. Again, nice blessing, but again, there's no covenantal language in there. Nothing about you know, inheriting land or having lots of generations of children or promises of Abraham. Nothing like that. There's no, that again lacks its covenantal language. So at this point, Yaakov obviously is, is fearing for his life. Rivka gets wind that uh, Esau wants to cause great harm to him, so she tells Yaakov, you're going to have to get out of here and uh, go stay with Uncle Laban and uh, wait till your brother cools down. So Yaakov's getting ready to take off, getting ready to flee, and in chapter 28, Yitzchak finally gets to provide the blessing he planned for Yaakov. You've got to remember, up to this point, in his head, he's blessed Esau twice. And he hasn't blessed Yaakov at all. So what we're about to read here is what he's had planned for Yaakov this whole time. Chapter 28, verse 1. So Yitzchak called Yaakov and after blessing him, charged him, you are not to choose a wife from the Hitti women. Go now to the home of Betuel, your mother's father, and choose a wife from there, from the daughters of Levan, your mother's brother. May El Shaddai bless you, make you fruitful, and increase your descendants until they become a whole assemblies of peoples. And may he give you the blessing which he gave Avraham, you and your descendants with you, so that you will possess the land that you will travel through, the land God gave to Avraham. 
Now you see, this blessing is saturated with covenantal language. And this is the blessing that he planned to give Yaakov the entire time. So there is no need for trickery at all. Uh, It would have worked out just fine. And that was a pretty hard lesson to learn because it split their family up. Years earlier, Rivka received a prophecy. A prophecy is just a message from God, either delivered directly from him or maybe through a dream or through a prophet. But that's what a prophecy is, a uh, a message from God about something that's going to happen in the future. And so Rivka gets this message. The uh, The older is going to serve the younger. And at the end of her husband's life, she's panicking because she's figuring out in her head, well, I'm going to have to help make this come to pass somehow. Uh, Adonai needs a little bit of help in this plan because I think he's failing here. And so she comes up with this scheme. She's thinking uh, she's just doing her best. But in her zeal, she really mishandled it. Now, there's a lot of lessons you can draw from this. She should have went to Yitzchak, maybe explained everything to him. The text doesn't say that she did that. Maybe lots of prayer. I mean, there's lots of things that she could have done and maybe avoided this unfortunate situation. But this is what happened. And so there's lots of lessons here to be learned from this. But the whole prophecy and how she handled it is something that I've thought about when I sort of transitioned into thinking about teaching on prophecy, right? She received a prophecy, mishandled it, it caused a lot of strife. So as I begin to do some work on prophecy in the coming weeks and months, I want to be very careful not to mishandle this platform. I'm cautious because there have been many people who have mishandled prophecy. It's not just Rivka. There's thousands of people who've mishandled prophecy, and it causes harm both to people who you know, fall for certain end-time predictions, but It also damages the integrity of our faith in the eyes of the world. And it's usually done by many very good-natured people, but we're supposed to look for signs, right? We're supposed to keep our eyes open and, and be wary for what the world has for us. But there's been a lot of mishandling. There's some classic examples of this. I'm not going to try to be too hard on many people, but it started, I guess, for... Everyone's sitting in here from what can, we can remember, probably. Um, in the 1970s, it was suggested that barcodes were the mark of the beast. You know, barcodes on every, you know, you can see how that makes sense, right? To buy or sell, barcodes on everything, goes around worldwide. Well, this must be the mark of the beast. Well, I mean, that kind of came and went. And then after that, it was uh, credit cards and social security numbers and microchips. Shoot, even... Monster energy drinks supposedly have 666 on the front of it. I mean, not that we shouldn't be looking, but sometimes I wonder if we're uh, not looking in the right spots for things like that. In May of 1980, televangelist Pat Robertson alarmed many when he guaranteed the end of the world in 1982. 1982 came and went. No tribulation started. Um... Many of us remember the book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. It's a gem. And it goes on, the Left Behind series, right? Haley's Comet, Y2K. 
Lots of end-time prophecies have come and gone. Now, a lot of people are very hard on some of these teachers and authors. They call them false prophets. I think that's a little bit too much of an overreaction. Um, these are, they write books and they, and they set dates and things like that, but these are generally very God-loving folks who read their Bible and are just trying to understand the end times. And in their zeal, they may sort of get carried away a little bit. I don't think that rises to the level of being a false prophet. A false prophet is somebody who draws people away from the word of God or claims to be a, a messiah or something like that. But the answer isn't to ignore prophecy altogether. I think that's going from one extreme to the other. I've been guilty of that. I was into prophecy many, many years ago, really into it. There was a time in my life when I was younger, I bought a bunch of canned goods and stuff and had them all stored in the garage. And Years go by and they all expire. And you kind of just get like worn out. I kind of got worn out on all that, that whole genre of, of religion, of prophecy, of end time stuff. And so I kind of... It's sort of like I got unbalanced the other ways where I just, I didn't read any of the books. I don't pay attention to any of those teachers. I just was almost tired of it for a while. And that's out of balance as well. And so we need to have a balanced approach with this, right? Because you don't want to be all, everything in the world's about balance, fire and water, nature. There has to be a, a balance of everything. And so maybe our spiritual life should be the same way. One of the dangers is, of course, that I fell into was almost scoffing where you begin to mock these people that write those books and make those movies because you kind of get just so sick of it after a while that it becomes irritating. All the false predictions, and I understand that, and I was there. But 2 Peter warns us about scoffing and, you know, I was just going to quote one verse from 2 Peter. I was going to quote 2 Peter 3.3. 3. Usually when I quote a verse, I'll kind of go there and, and read through the whole chapter. And so last night I flipped over to 2 Peter chapter 3, and I read the whole chapter, and I thought, there's a lot of really good stuff in here. Maybe I shouldn't just quote this one verse out of here. Maybe we should go there because I think there's a lot of really good stuff that sort of, that really got me thinking about just prophecy and how to even handle this in general, this uh, project I want to embark on in the coming weeks and months about teaching about prophecy, yet keeping it balanced and, and uh, rational at the same time. Second Peter chapter 3, it's found on page 1523. It is near the very end. Fifteen twenty-three in the complete Jewish Bible, or if you have another version of Scripture, it's probably going to be right near the end, a handful of pages from Revelation. Second Peter chapter three. I kind of saw this in three parts. The first part, we'll read through it a little bit together. Verse 1, Dear friends, I'm writing you now the second letter, and in both letters I'm trying to arouse you to wholesome thinking by means of reminders so that you will keep in mind the predictions of the holy prophets and the command given by the Lord and Deliverer through your emissaries. First, understand this. During the last days, scoffers will come following their own desires and asking, 
Where is this promised coming of his? For our fathers have died and everything goes on just as it has since the beginning of creation. But wanting so much to be right about this, they overlooked the fact that it was by God's word that long ago there were heavens and there was a land which arose out of the water and existed between the waters. And that by means of these things, the world of that time was flooded and the water with water and was destroyed. It is by that same word that the present heavens and earth, having been preserved, are being kept for fire until the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. So this first section here, this first seven verses, um, encourages us to be mindful of prophecy. In verse 2, that's the verbiage that's used there. Be mindful of prophecy. Be mindful of the predictions of the holy prophets. Keep them in mind. And that has sort of a balance to nuance to it. It doesn't say be obsessive over prophecy, and it doesn't say ignore it altogether. Keep it in mind. That sounds fairly reasonable, right? Keep it in mind, the predictions of the holy prophets and the command given by the Lord. And so I thought, yeah, I like that. It sounds, it doesn't sound too out of balance. The next paragraph there, I kind of saw that it's its own little thing. Verse 8, moreover, dear friends, do not ignore this. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some people think of slowness. On the contrary, he is patient with you, for it is not his purpose that anyone should be destroyed, but that everyone should turn from his sins. However, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and on that day the heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements will melt and disintegrate, and the earth and everything in it will be burned up. Now, obviously... You can see a lot of parallels with Revelation-type language going on here. And so this paragraph here will be something that we'll come back to in the coming weeks and months as we begin to work through the book of Revelation and all the different prophets, that, um, all the different connections there. So I like that. That, was, uh, that. There's some deeper stuff in there that, we, that we'll get into coming up. But this third section, the last part here, has... Um, like the, the practical, uh, has some practical advice in it. So I kind of liked how this whole chapter was set up because it sort of ends with practical stuff. Verse 11, since everything is going to be destroyed like this, what kind of people should you be? Well, you should be leading holy and godly lives as you wait for the day of God and work to hasten this coming. The day, that day will bring on destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt from the earth. But we, following along with his promise, wait for the new heavens and a new earth. That's the hope, amen? And righteousness, which will be at home. Therefore, dear friends, as you look for these things, do everything you can to be found by him without spot or defect, that's being holy, and at peace. And think of our Lord's uh, patience as deliverance, just as our dear brother Shalul wrote to you following the wisdom God gave him. Indeed, he speaks about things in all his letters. They contain some things which are hard to understand, some things which the uninstructed and unable distort to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. But you, dear friends, since you know this in advance, guard yourselves so that you will not be led astray by the errors of the wicked and fall from your own secure position and keep growing in grace and knowledge of the Lord 
of our Lord and Deliverer, Yeshua the Messiah, to him be the glory both now and forever. Amen and amen. And so what really resonated with me was the, the question and answer in verse 11. What kind of people should we be? Well, we should be holy and godly, right? I like to think we all do this well, but I'm a little biased. Second, we need to wait for the day of the Lord. This takes patience. We need to wait for the day of the Lord. This means not wishing doom and destruction on our enemies, right? We should be uh, patient, hoping that there's teshuva and repentance there so they can add themselves to the body of Messiah. And three, as we read there in verse 12, I found a little curious, the most curious of them all, work to hasten its coming. We have to work. There's like work to do. And this manifests itself in many forms, charity, helping mission ministries. I mean, these are things that we do collectively as a corporation. We give to these type of ministries and we, you know, there's benevolence. But it's also growing in your own faith because on some level, all of us are representatives of Messiah in the world as we go about our lives at school, at workplaces, just in public in general. We're all representatives of what it's like to be uh, one of the Talmudim of Yeshua. So on some level, that's work as well. We have to work to show ourselves approved. So we should be holy, be patient, and be busy working. And that's sort of the balance to when we talk about prophecy and um, talking about the end times because that kind of gives you the feeling of being impatient and it's hard to have peace and it's hard not to wish destruction on your enemies because you're talking about there's the mark of the beast and uh, the antichrist and all these terrible gloom and doom things. It kind of drums up a feeling of anxiety like, the end's about to happen, and you become angry at political figures that are persecuting us. But we need to balance all of that with being holy and being patient and working to uh, still do positive things in the world. So I want to try to handle it responsibly. I don't want to mishandle it or wander off the path too far. Prophecy is an important subject, but keeping an eye on the chaotic world uh, that's important too. There's hostile governments all around us. But I'm thankful, and we are all thankful, that we get a vacation from all that chaos one day a week, and that's on Shabbat. This is that vacation away from the world that is a, a day where we can come together and on this blessed Shabbat and have delight. We have a place we can do that in, and we have a community here with each other to help us live holy lives and to help us encourage each other and lift each other up because this is something that if we are in the end times and this is something life is going to be getting more and more difficult, we're going to need this place and each other more than ever. So we lift each other up. We're very blessed and we need each other and this place and the Shabbat rest. May he come soon and in our days. Shabbat Shalom.